Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who have made a mark in marketing and of course have an opinion or two. Our guest today ticks both of those boxes. Seth Godin has the eyes and ears of marketers throughout the world. He is the writer of the world's most read marketing blog and has written several best-selling books on marketing, business and personal development. He's also an entrepreneur, founding two companies, Squidoo and Yo-Yo Dean, and the online leadership and management workshop Alt-MBA. He's also a marketer of significant note, taking his place in the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame and the Marketing Hall of Fame. Inductions, no doubt, helped by a stint as Yahoo VP of Direct Marketing in the 90s. He describes himself as an author, yes, an entrepreneur, yes, but also, and I quote, most of all, a teacher. Welcome, Seth. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You began your career in marketing at Spinacre in the 1980s. Why marketing as a career in the first place? I grew up with a, a very short attention span and combined that with great parents who encouraged me to make a ruckus. And I was a free-range kid. And what I found was that when I saw things in the world that I thought could be better, I wanted to make them better. I knew I couldn't design a bridge that would hold up a car heavier than any car had ever been on a bridge. And I knew I didn't have the patience or diligence to be a surgeon. But I felt, even uh, at the age of 20, that the idea of using stories to engage with other people to make things better, to do things that were fun or exciting or interesting or generous, that's what I wanted to do. If I hadn't discovered that marketing was a job, I probably would have tried to make it into one. An obvious path may have been for you to progress in marketing through a more traditional route, perhaps taking on more senior positions at bigger firms, but you quickly turned to becoming your own boss, setting up your own companies. Why was that? Well, you know, the fork in the road for marketers started to show up in the 80s and 90s, and that fork in the road is this. You can be part of the marketing industrial complex, which means that you take what the factory produces and using slightly better than ordinary technique, you market average stuff to average people. And with full props to David Ogilvy, he was the master of that. David Ogilvy didn't figure out what to make. He simply figured out how to advertise it. But even in the 80s, I could see that that was breaking and then that was falling apart. That having a bigger budget to run more ads for more average stuff for more average people working on Crystal Light or Oreo cookies, wasn't more satisfying. It was less satisfying. And so I took my own advice and I said, I need to make the thing that I want to market. And the number of places where I could get a job doing that was zero. So I hired myself. I mean, you had a stint at Yahoo following its acquisition of Yo-Yo Dine. Did corporate life not just suit you, or perhaps was it for the reasons that you've just explained? Well, you know, Yahoo was the center of the Internet universe in 1999. Yahoo and the Internet were the same thing. Most people started their online journey there, and it was a roller coaster. 
When I was there, I invented a number of things that have since come true in the world, though they didn't have my fingerprints on them when they came out. And I loved the idea of being able to have that sort of leverage. And the challenge was that on a good day, the Yahoo stock price would go up $3. And if you're working with people who own 50,000 or 100,000 stock options, it's very difficult to go to them and say, let's try something new and important because they understood that yesterday they made a quarter of a million U.S. dollars by doing the same thing again. And like many public companies that are growing, they faltered because they were driving looking in the rearview mirror. And my challenge was, I was an am, a ruckus maker, somebody who lives on the neophiliac cutting edge of what might work. But a big public institution doesn't get rewarded for what might work. They get rewarded for executing what does work. And it became pretty clear to me that I needed to go back into the world and get to my roots of teaching because I couldn't coexist with an institution like that. And if that's not their fault, that's my fault. As I said in my intro, you're the author of several books. The latest is This is Marketing. You can't be seen until you learn to see. What would be the elevator pitch for the book? Yeah, um, so it's my 19th book, and it's painful like all books to publish. I haven't written a full-length book uh, on marketing in more than seven years, so why now? And I'm hesitant to do an elevator pitch because no one ever bought anything on an elevator. But I would say that marketing has changed, and yet... The standard bearers, the textbooks, the, the uh, accepted wisdom really hasn't. So what we've got is all these big marketers trying to hack or find a shortcut to get more Twitter followers or to come up with ways to use the Internet to take the place of their beloved TV. And I think that's the wrong conversation. And what I'm trying to do is help people understand whether they have a 100 million pound budget or whether they're a soloist, that marketing is the act of complaining, that we make things better by making better things, that we don't have to do marketing at people. We can do it with them and for them, and that marketing is this magical form of leadership that's available to more people than ever before because all of us have the same keyboard and it's all connected to the same two billion people. So the question when you go to work tomorrow is, what are you going to do with that keyboard? It's not how many gross rating points can you buy with that budget. It's what true story will you choose to tell that will make things better for the people you seek to serve. Warming to that and digging into some of the points that you make in the book, Seth, it's mentioned in the book's blurb that it's time that marketers stop feeling guilty about what they do. And elsewhere, you talk in an exalted terms about marketing being a great calling and being a generous act of helping people solve a problem. Why do you think people perhaps are feeling guilty about marketing? Well, some people don't feel guilty enough. The narcissistic, short-term, egomaniacal, selfish marketer that is stealing attention, tricking people, manipulating people, and putting high pressure to work to sell them something they don't want and don't need that's going to hurt their health – those people should feel more guilty. But most people who market, most people who want to make things better, actually care about the effects and the side effects of what they do. The problem is that the bad apples, the ones who call senior citizens at home and manipulate them into spending money they don't have, have given the entire field 
a black eye. You know, you mentioned the Direct Marketing Association. I got kicked out of the DMA uh, in the 1990s because I testified in Washington about how spam was evil and should be regulated. And at the time, the DMA felt like that was against their interests. What they came to understand was that established organizations benefit from there being a floor so that there isn't a race to the bottom. They benefit from having boundaries to force them into not giving up everything they stood for when they started. And the problem is, in some competitive marketplaces, people have persuaded themselves that, quote, doing their job is the same thing as acting in a way they're ashamed of. And I think what's happened since attention has been blown up by the Internet is what we really need to do is do our jobs by doing work we're proud of instead. Do you think, though, that picking up on just the latter half of what you said there, that can, let me put it another way, are people perhaps guilty of overstretching? We hear a lot about brand purpose, and that can lead to often empty statements of worthiness. Do you think perhaps that is a risk if people think about connecting and relationships and doing good? Well, yeah. I mean, if you get enough people into the room, your mission statement and your brand purpose will become meaningless every time because people are hiding. And they don't want to say, for example, our purpose is to make more money. Well, that's probably what your purpose is because it's not clear that you had the calling to build the world's largest accordion company it might just be that you sell accordions because it's a good way to make a living. And that's fine. But then I think what we have to accept is that most purchases made by most people from non-monopolies are voluntary. Why would someone voluntarily listen to us? Why would they voluntarily read our ad? Why would they voluntarily come to our dealership and voluntarily give us money? Well, part of it is they believe something we don't believe. They know something we don't know. And mostly, they want something we don't want. And we need to respect them for that and engage with them about where they want to go. So I don't care too much about a company's purpose, but I care a lot about their customer's purpose. Because if the company says our purpose is to help our customers reach their purpose and make enough money doing it to do it again, that's a fine all-purpose purpose statement for the typical company. That seems to me to be an absolute fundamental of, of marketing, though, finding problems and finding solutions to those problems, as you talk about on many occasions during the book. Perhaps, though, it could be argued that those very basic things are being forgotten. There's so much data that proves attribution. There's uh, so much bottom of the funnel focus as a result of that, perhaps, some would contest. Do you think people have got a little bit away from those fundamentals of solving problems and orientating around customer needs? Oh, absolutely. So let me give you an example. Consider Crystal Light or Pepsi. The, the folks at Pepsi under John Scully did a lot of research and discovered that if they made the top of a bottle of Pepsi a little bit wider, then a teenager could drink the whole thing in one swill. And they call that slamming, slamming down a Pepsi. And the reason that they'd spent this time and money was because their stated purpose was to increase share of stomach, to get the vast majority of fluids that were consumed by a human 
to be fluids made by the Pepsi Corporation. Now, I don't know where it is where you live, but where I live, that is not a basic human need, to drink more Pepsi. And in fact, the idea of why would a teenager want to slam an entire bottle of Pepsi, it's not because they have a need to get more Pepsi into their system faster. And what I spend a lot of the book about is talking about status roles, affiliation, dominance, and who eats lunch first. So what do teenagers need? What they need is to feel alive. What they need is to be seen. What they need is to want to be part of something. That what teenagers need is the feeling that they get from doing certain teenage activities. And what the people at Pepsi did was they invented an activity, slamming a Pepsi, and sold the feeling of that activity to teenagers. And as a result, they sold a lot of stuff. They created a lot of diabetics. My point is they could have satisfied teenager needs in a hundred different ways, but those ways didn't have to include maximizing share of stomach. They could have simply included creating a community, a feeling, a tribe, so that joy was felt when someone bought a Pepsi. And there's lots of ways you could have implemented that. But because people forgot what they did as marketers, they just got hooked up on what the brief said. And what the brief said was, get teenagers to drink more Pepsi faster. And I don't think that's what people needed. Perhaps related to that, you say in the chapter about the marketing funnel uh, that in your time the number of people measuring results of a campaign has shut up simply because they can measure results and in more ways. Uh, but what was missing is a thoughtful analysis of what those numbers mean. Why do you think that has become the case and at what consequence and cost for brand success? So just because we can measure something doesn't mean we should. And it's super safe in a corporate environment to base your work on measurement. On, on looking at the numbers. And the mistake that we make when we do that is we forget to look at the humans. And if you're hoping for a breakthrough, you're not going to find a breakthrough in big data because big data is looking in the rearview mirror. Big data can't necessarily, doesn't always fail. It might work, but it doesn't get you a breakthrough. It gets you incremental advance. So uh, an expression I heard a few months ago, which I believe is if you use data enough, sooner or later, every website will become a porn site. And the reason is if you look at the clicks, if you look at what you need to do to maximize the clicks, sooner or later, that's where your site's going to go. That what it means to do important marketing is to push against that in key moments and say, I know that this creates tension, but it's worth it because the people I seek to serve are going to be served by me pushing on to them something important, offering them something important, not offering them something that's simply convenient or momentarily appealing. So you can have all the data points in the world, but it won't offer you the insight that you need. And if you, are, if you actually care about marketing, I think that's what you want. If all you care about is how do I move up in this corporation, then pursuing data is a fine thing to do. But that's not my pulpit. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. 
targeting versus mass marketing is a very lively debate and one that we've housed on many occasions on Marketing Week. You tell the story, and it's probably my favourite illustration in the entire book, of the Grateful Dead, and you use the Grateful Dead as an example of effectively and powerfully marketing to the smallest viable market. I just wondered for everybody that's listening, A, that might not know who the Grateful Dead are, and B, for their illustration, what you mean by the worthiness and the, uh, and the, and the best-case scenario of the Grateful Dead. Okay, so the, the quick one-minute overview. In the 70s and 80s, bigger than the Rolling Stones, bigger than Van Morrison, bigger than Paul McCartney, were the Grateful Dead as a touring act. That in every one of those years, if they were on the road, they were the number one or number two touring act in the United States. Sold more tickets, and they did all this with exactly one top 40 hit in their entire career. So how could we explain this? Well, the way we explain it is that instead of people going to one concert a year, the core Grateful Dead fans went to 10 or 20 or 30 concerts a year. That The Grateful Dead encouraged their fans to record the concerts from the soundboard if they could and then share the cassette tapes of the concerts far and wide. Every other group was busy suing people. The Grateful Dead were busy encouraging them to do it. People were living in buses and following the band around the the world. So what's the lesson? The lesson is that by obsessing about the 100,000 or a quarter million people who were obsessed with them, they made music for their fans instead of looking for fans for their music. What it means is that the smallest viable audience to become a world-class changing organization that has an impact on the culture forever, the minimum viable audience in the music business isn't 20 million or 50 million. It's 250,000. And by obsessing with that family, by narrating this ongoing party, the dead showed us, showed skeptics that say to me, well, I need to make a big impact. You can make a big impact. In fact, you're more likely to make a big impact if you matter a lot to a few people than if you matter a little to a lot of people. Another example you use this time when you're talking about organizing and leading a tribe perhaps might be a bit more controversial. You talk about the NRA. Can you just explain what you mean and perhaps what marketers, if anything, can learn from them? Okay, so I'll preface this by saying I'm not a fan or believer, I don't approve of the National Rifle Association in the United States. But I will say the following. With only 5 million members, that's 1 out of 60, that's fewer than 2% of the U.S. population, this group has changed not only the conversation in this country, but has changed the actions of elected officials in state houses and in the federal government with a tiny, tiny group of supporters. And part of the reason is because they've focused obsessively on this small group instead of trying to please the outsiders, that shunning the non-believers, that saying this is what we do and we get that you don't want to do it, us to do it, but our fans do, is a perfect lesson for just about any nonprofit that wants to change the conversation. Because too often, 
We are worried about making sure that everyone is in favor, when in fact, the way our culture works is when a few people really care, their voices amplified multitudes. You state in the book that effective marketers don't start with a solution. They find a problem they seek to solve. Just wondered, in an age that technology drives so much product development, whether or not too many people are starting with the solution and not the problem. You know, it's interesting when my dad ran a real factory with uh, United Auto Workers workforce and bending metal and things like that. During the factory age, you worried a lot about what you knew how to make. So Josiah Wedgwood, who was the original marketer, the first marketer of scale in the world, knew how to make pottery. And because that's what they knew how to make, that's what they marketed. But today, most of the brands we talk about don't even make the thing they say they make. They just outsource it. And once we add software to the mix, even though software is a mystery to most executives, too often we'll get hung up on what do we know how to make as opposed to starting with what dreams and desires. Where is the tension? Where is the fear? Where are the dreams and the wishes of the people we seek to serve? And those dreams and wishes have nothing to do with bent metal or with bits on a screen. They have to do with basic human needs like engagement, dignity, respect, possibility, power, etc., etc. Those are what drive people. And the stuff we sell them is simply an add-on, a commentary, a souvenir of the change that person actually seeks to make. In the concluding paragraph of the book, you pose the question, is marketing evil? And in response to your own question, you say this. For me, marketing works for society when the marketer and customer are both aware of what's happening and are both satisfied with the ultimate outcome. I don't think it's evil to make someone happy by selling them cosmetics because beauty isn't the goal. It's the process that brings joy. On the other hand, swindling someone out of their house in order to make a sales commission, dot, 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 dot. I just wondered whether or not you're optimistic about the future of marketing. Well... It's both. We are currently witnessing more brilliant, creative, generous product and service creation than any time in human history. We're seeing more connection, more responsibility taken, more actual authenticity in the service of service than ever before. But at the same time, there are 10,000 full-time hackers who are trying to break PayPal open for the, uh, the mob. At the same time, there are people shifting from one storefront to another to rip off people with payday loans. And so what we've done is, as often happens, is we've given people a tool, a new technology, and some people are using that to do work they're proud of, and some people are using that to see what they can get away with. And so part of my role as a teacher and a cheerleader is to make it clear that there is a path for the good guys and that we need more of them. And if we care enough to say, no, no, I'm not going to market this. I'm not going to fake the data. I'm not going to manipulate people. If enough marketers stop, quote, doing their job and start doing work they're proud of, then the world's going to get better. But I don't think it's appropriate for a marketer to say, I had no choice because we always have a choice.
What do you think the most important attributes of a marketer must be? Well, great marketers make assertions. They make assertions about who they're serving, what those people they serve believe and want, and then they make assertions about how their intervention will make things better. And making assertions is really difficult. We didn't learn how to do it in school, and it's scary. Scary to stand up and say, I assert, I believe, I promise. And there are very few fields in corporate uh, America or the U.K., where you get to make an assertion. The accountants don't usually make an assertion. The metallurgists don't usually make an assertion. The customer service people don't usually make an assertion. But we as marketers have to do it all the time. We have to say, if we do this, if we promise this, I think that will happen. And junior marketers feel like they will get punished if they do that, so they don't get any practice. And then one day they get a job as a CMO and suddenly they don't know what to do which is part of the reason there's so much turnover in the CMO office. Related to that, if you were to offer a young marketer just starting out in their career a single piece of advice, what would that be? People ask me this all the time, and my answer is market. Don't look for a job marketing. Do marketing. Start an eBay store. Start a Kickstarter. Find a nonprofit you care about and do a campaign to raise money for them. Figure out how to get people to take their tuberculosis medicine. Be in the world and do marketing. You don't need a permit, you don't need a license, and you don't need money. So the best marketers I know have been marketing. That's how they know how to market. Because there aren't that many books that will show you how to think about this. The best thing to do is go do it. What's your biggest bugbear as you look across the world of modern marketing, where do you think people are going wrong? Well, the thing that really undermines my optimism are the selfish narcissists, followed by the people who don't understand design thinking. Who's it for and what's it for? This thing you made, this thing you put into the world, why did you do it? Who is it for? Because if you did it to please the committee, you've wasted time and money. If you did it to please me, the person you sought to please, thank you very much. And too often, we expend enormous number of cycles trying to please the wrong people. What's the biggest achievement that you've seen, marketing-led achievement that you've seen in your lifetime? Well, of course this is grandiose, but I think that marketing saved the world. That, as Tom Friedman pointed out, there have been few, if any, wars between two countries that have a McDonald's. And I think that if we go all the way back to 1959, when the world almost ended from the Cold War, that's the ascendancy of mass marketing. And that marketing, showing up in our living rooms, showing up in our homes, regularly fulfilling people's needs and desires, works best when the world isn't fighting with itself. And so this, my entire lifetime, since 1960, has been noted by two things at the same time. One, the countries of the world are more powerful and better armed than ever before in human history. And two, as Steve Pinker has pointed out, the world is safer and less violent than it has been in recorded history. And I think those two things can only overlap because there's been this positive effect of marketers who maybe for selfish reasons figured out how to get people to focus their energy not on beating up their neighbor, but on engaging 
with stuff or services that fulfilled their needs and desires. As much as the editor of Marketing Week that I would love to agree with you wholeheartedly, I do feel the need just to contest slightly. Isn't that just a triumph of free trade and globalization as opposed to marketing? Well, free trade and globalization happened because someone told a story that made it attractive. You know, I was doing work with Western Seed in rural Kenya. And in rural Kenya, about 65% of the farmholders use farm-saved seeds, meaning every year they plant the seeds they had from the year before that they kept over the winter. The problem with those seeds is they don't yield very much. So if you buy hybrid seeds, non-GMO, but hybrid seeds, you will make about $3,000 extra an acre, and those seeds cost about $15. So the return on investment is huge. The farmers have the 15 bucks. So why do fewer than a third of them buy the seeds? Well, you could say it's a failure of free trade or globalization, but no, free trade and globalization are present. What it is is a failure of storytelling. Because if the farmer doesn't believe that this new kind of seed is going to be better, they're not going to buy it. And that's a marketer's job. It's a marketer's job to figure out how to get someone in one community to want to engage with a product or service that came from another community. Products and services almost never show up unbidden and become popular. They become popular not because of advertising, but because of someone who might not call themselves a marketer is doing marketing, which is making a product or service that resonates with the worldview and dreams of the person you're seeking to serve in such a way that they want it. And so, no, I'll push back on you. I think that we couldn't have done it without free trade and globalization. But free trade and globalization kicked in because marketing helped it, not the other way around. What's your biggest career achievement, Seth? Well, you know, I've made more mistakes than almost anyone I know of in this field, shipped more products that didn't work, gotten rejected more often, had more harebrained schemes that either got turned down or just fell flat. And I've come to relish those mistakes because I learned something from them. So maybe it should say on my tombstone, he screwed up more than the average bear. I might settle for that. But I'd love to be measured by what the people I taught taught other people because it's these second and third order shifts that mean the culture is being changed and that's what I seek to do. I think we could all do with leaving such a legacy from our professional lives. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you to my guest, Seth Goding. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce and brought to you by something else with me, Russell Parsons, and producer Laura Hyde. You can subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud and listen again via marketingweek.com, where you can hear previous episodes with the likes of Byron Sharp, Syl Seller, and Tom Goodwin. Until next time, goodbye. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs.